This morning, if you would, take your Bibles with me, please, and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'd like to address this subject. I'm sorry, brother. Thank you. I'd like to address the subject of effectual evangelism. And I just want to begin from the outset by prefacing the message by saying that God has called every one of us, those of us who have had the blood of Christ applied to the doorpost of our soul by the precious work of the Holy Spirit, to do the work of an evangelist, to do the work of an evangelist, every one of us, without exception. If you're in Christ, you have that weighty responsibility. And so, I don't know about you, I I, I bemoan the fact here recently to my dear brother Paul Washer, how I've not seen people come to Christ. For years, you know, I ministered in Arminian circles, primarily in the independent Baptist and the Southern Baptist churches. Precious, precious people, precious pastors I had the privilege of ministering with. And, and I knew, even by their own testimony, that many people in their churches were not born again. But I'm still, I'm just as convinced in this hour that there are people in our Reformed churches that have never passed from death into life. No reality no passion, no ability through a supernatural work to overcome sin, no love for Christ. They continue to just go through the formality of a dead Sunday to Sunday religiosity. And so my responsibility that God has charged me with this morning is to share with you what God's doing in my life in regard to seeing people come to Christ And as I said, I I shared this with Brother Paul recently. And the first thing he said to me is, maybe you've become too civilized. You know, here's the sad thing within the reform movement. Oftentimes we're so precise, we're so astute to make sure that every T is crossed and every D is dotted because we feel this pressure from our peers. And, and, and we cease to believe God for the extraordinary. We cease to believe God for something that is distinctly supernatural. And so this morning I come to you very humbly. And here's a part of my humility. is the fact that I was a lost Baptist preacher before God had mercy on me. I made numerous professions of faith until God caused the light to shine under darkness. So brethren, even though this will not be the focal point this morning, let me ask you this question. Has God done anything for you? You may say, well, I pray and ask Christ to save me. I've looked to that gospel for salvation. I walked an aisle. I attest to faith in Christ. But I ask you, beyond all of that, all that you've done, all of your activity, has God done anything for you. One thought before we read our text. 
The great miracle of conversion is not the changes that other people see in you, but the changes that you witness in yourself. So take a step back. Are there things that have transpired in your life that could only be explained in terms of the supernatural activity of God? Has God done something for you? Would you follow along with me in the scripture this morning? I'm reading from the ESV. I'm, I'm, I must warn you at the beginning, I use a hodgepodge of translations, four translations in my notes. The Old King James, New King James, NASB, and ESV. Okay? So you're going to hear me quote the scripture, which will be Old King James. But I'll reference different versions, not to confuse, not to confuse, but for clarification. Okay? So bear with me here uh, if I'm not speaking directly out of your translation of the scripture. All four of those translations are very reliable and very good. So let me begin by reading the text, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray once again together. Father, we cast ourselves upon you, the great one, needs you, Father. Pray that you might give us a measure of your Spirit's outpouring. Father, cause our ears to exercise rapt attention our hearts to be pliable, to receive the word of God with meekness. And dear Father, would you engender conviction in the hearts of your people as the ambassadors of God who have been entrusted with this message of reconciliation, the gospel, to go forth, Lord, and be diligent, intentional in their responsibility to share Christ. 
Please help me now. Lord, may what I share come across with clarity, both physically and spiritually, in Abel. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, the text before us this morning is arguably the greatest on the subject of personal evangelism. Now, you might find a better text that delineates the simple plan of salvation, repentance and faith in Christ. And you might find one that really exposits the work of God in regeneration, which is nothing short of a miracle. But it would be very difficult for you to find a better text that clearly exposits these ingredients, these significant components in regard to evangelism, sharing Christ with those outside of himself. Recently, I did a series for our heart cry missionaries in Eastern Europe, as well as our own local church faith family, on the subject of the forgotten factors of evangelism. Once again, this goes back to the fact that I bemoaned the fact that I wasn't seeing people come to Christ. And so these are things that either the church has deliberately avoided or they have overlooked. Such things as the importance of sharing your faith naturally like the woman at the well. Come see a man that told me all that I ever did. Is not this the Christ? Such themes as the art of persuasion, persuading sinners. Or as we find in our text here, standing in Christ's stead and pleading with the unregenerate to come to Christ. I talked about the importance of the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Of how important it is to maintain a compassion toward those that are outside of Christ and not to become frustrated with them. And so we went on and on, 18 different messages on the forgotten factors of evangelism. And in this very text here this morning, you find that some of these things are mentioned. It is vital in these eight verses that we look at this morning that these elements that comprise effectual evangelism are underscored. So what I want to do is I normally do when I preach, I want to give you just three basic points. And I pray that they might be savory and and helpful to you in your walk with Christ. First of all, if you would, look back with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 14. The first thing I want to set forth is the importance of gospel motivation. Paul says in verse 14, for the love of Christ constrains us or compels us. The word here for constrain or compel, or as the scripture says here in verse 14 of the ESV, controls us, means a shutting up to one line or purpose as in a narrow wall. We're being hedged in. And the more you relish in the good news, the redemptive beauties of Christ, the more you have a sense, a surge supernaturally, that this is something that I must share. It's something that I must engage those around me with. Think about this this morning. Motivation is vital 
for sustaining evangelism. Just like any other area of our Christian life, whether it's the mortification of sin, whether it's our prayer life, motivation is essential. The Apostle Paul could fittingly bear the reputation of soul winner. For a winner of souls, life is not characterized by what the Puritans said are fits and starts. Have you ever read that statement or heard that statement before? Fits and starts. In other words, here's a scenario. Some high-powered evangelist comes into your church or maybe the pastor one Sunday has a mantle of prophetic utterance fall on him and he preaches and it's like you're backed into a corner. It's a message that is a defining moment that's just for you. And so you're forced to make a commitment at that moment. You resolve that from this day forward in this particular area, things are going to be different. And it lasts for a few days or a few weeks. And all of a sudden, despondency begins to set in and it begins to fade away. That's fits and starts. We have a fit to make a new decision, a new resolve. But it doesn't last. And therefore, it results in despondency. Paul knew nothing of that in his life. And it's interesting, friend, he was a man of like passions as we are. Even though, yes, he was an apostle, yes, he was set aside for the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. Yes, he was a witness to signs and wonders. But he was a man of like passions as we are. This is for us. Think about it. If subjective feelings and circumstances dictate our evangelistic appeals, our soul winning will be characterized by inconsistency and barrenness. It's interesting as you think about this text. You find that the apostles' motivation did not come from without people badgering, people manipulating him to do what he should do in the way of evangelism, but it came from within. You know, call it grace, call it a God-given conviction, call it a spirit birth passion, but whatever it was, Paul never rested in his pursuit to win men to Christ. Think about it. Why? It all goes back to motivation. The reason he was intentional, aboundingly so, is because there was something motivated, motivating him from within that was of a supernatural sort. And it was his relishing in the gospel. The gospel drove everything in the apostle's life. Not just his love for the church. Not just his love for sinners. Not just the mortification of sin. He found his entertainment in the gospel. And let me just say this, brethren. Some of us, we think, well, I understand the gospel. If I ask you, I said, what is the gospel? Somebody would raise their hand, maybe a child would say, well, it's John 3.16. And I'd say, bravo, that's exactly right. Somebody would raise their hand and say, well, I know the answer. 
And they might take us to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 2 and 3 there, that it talks about the death and burial and resurrection of Christ. And I would say, absolutely, I affirm that. But understand, friend, that the gospel is so much more. Not for saving power, saving effect, but for spiritual drive. Here's my conviction. Whatever dazzles you will drive you. Whatever you find your wonder in, whether it's Texas football or some other pursuit in life, when that becomes a chief passion of your life, you'll lack for no motivation to attend the games, to talk about it. So it was with Paul. He found his entertainment in the gospel. The driving force is the atonement of Jesus Christ. And dear brothers and sisters, don't ever think that because you've got a grasp on the death, burial, and resurrection, that that's all there is to know about the gospel. Listen, think about these themes. There's scores of them. Propitiation. Expiation. Substitutionary atonement. Imputed righteousness. The love of God. When you unpack those themes, I tell you, friend, the Spirit of God will buoy you up and give you motivation to be consistent in your witness for Jesus Christ. But you want to know something? The reason it's not today is because Christians in North America are too busy for God. They're victimized by the barrenness of busyness. You don't find this in church history. We sang the song this morning when I surveyed the wondrous cross. And it's interesting, friend. You find that when you read that, he doesn't state a theological beauty. And then he says, now I'm going to resolve to do something about it. His grasp of those beauties. And when I surveyed the wondrous cross, what came out of that was a natural outflow of this. If this whole world was mine and I could give it back to God, that would be a far, a sacrifice far too small. Think about this. You remember the story of the Moravian missionaries? People marvel at the 200-year non-stop prayer meeting 24-7 of the Moravian church. Imagine that. No abate of pleading with God. And at that time, it seemed to be the, the major catalyst for world evangelization. They marvel at that. They marvel at the sacrifice of these two young men, Dobler and Nitschman, who gave up houses and lands and family to go to the mission field. But have you ever considered this part of the story? What was it that drove those young men? What compelled them? Listen. They had so studied, contemplated, and relished in the depths of the atoning beauties of the dying Lamb that they concluded, listen, quote, if Christ paid such an infinite price to redeem fallen man, then no sacrifice is too great to reach them. And so they embark. Here they are from Hernhut, Germany. They sell themselves to a slave owner. 
and boarded a ship bound for the West Indies to preach the gospel to the African slaves on the Caribbean islands of St. Thomas and St. Croix. And you remember the story as the ship began to move away from the shore there. They waved to their loved ones, their faith family on the shore. May the Lamb receive the reward of His sufferings. And I tell you, brothers and sisters, I find in my own personal life, in spite of the abundance of glitches and struggles and inconsistencies and besetting sins, in my life right now, this is the compelling force, is the gospel. If people try to manipulate me to do what I ought to do spiritually, I might see their reasoning. It might even be biblical reasoning. But the thing that motivates and sustains motivation more than anything else is the Spirit of God using your meditation, your contemplation in the blood-soaked content of the cross. Think about this. It was the gospel that constrained them. It was a propitiation of Christ that propelled them. It was a spurge and admonished the result of them plumbing the depths of the atonement. This is what Paul found. Gospel themes, please bear with me here. Such as the love of Christ in verse 14. Substitutionary atonement in verse 15. He died for them. The resurrection of our Lord in verse 15. Reconciliation in verse 18. Who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. Imputed righteousness in verse 19. Where he says God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. Not imputing their trespasses unto them. These things served as fuel to drive the apostle. So think with me here. It is in the grasping of and relishing in these rich themes that we are impassioned to make evangelism a priority. Sadly, there are many believers who have wrapped their minds around the soul-enriching fiber of the gospel, but at the same time, it does nothing for them except to give them the sense that they are part of a common pool of evangelicals who bemoan the fact that their churches are not growing, but know little, if any, motivation to share the gospel with their community. So how can we make these gospel truths known? How can they become a catalyst for our own evangelism? Let me suggest two ways very quickly. I believe that the gospel in all its glorious aspects, is the supreme motivation in igniting and sustaining effectual evangelism. Let me explain. There are two reasons for this, and that is, our zeal is founded on love. The principle of love. Not moralism. Not duty. Not manipulation. But the reason this is a driving force that honors God is because it's founded, it's predicated upon love. You see, such realities as the Bema Seat of Christ, everlasting punishment, eternal hell, 
And eternal crowns are legitimate spirit, biblical motivations to reach people, but they are more fear-based than love-based. Now, are you tracking with me? Listen to this. For example, when these are our motivation, we witness for Christ out of the fear of not having our works pass the test of fire at the Bema. Or a fear over what lost men will eternally suffer. There are going to be fuel for the burning. They'll burn for all eternity. That ought to move us. Didn't say that was wrong. I'm saying that there's a far greater motivation. Or a fear that I may have no crown to lay at the feet of Jesus. Whereas when the beauties of Christ's atonement have ravished my heart, I find incentive to share Christ not with a have-to attitude, but I get to. I get to do it. Secondly, the gospel enables us to witness from an experiential vantage point. Unlike the judgment seat, the doctrine of hell, or eternal crowns that have afforded me no spirit-given experience on this side of eternity, I know they're realities, I know they're true, but they've imparted to me no spirit-given experience On this side of eternity, I have been made to taste personally the transforming power of God in the gospel. Therefore, I'm driven by the fact, watch this now, Christ died for me. Let me be transparent with you. I'm enthralled with the fact that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son for sinners. I'm enamored of the reality that He loves the church and gave himself for her, for it. But what warms my heart and drives me is the fact that Christ died for me. Brothers and sisters, he died for me. I'm not going to hell. He died for me. How can you not speak of him when you realize the depth of that statement? He died for you. Number two this morning, another very important component in effectual evangelism is divine intervention. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8. There's a small little phrase here that's just pregnated with power and reality. And Paul says, and all things are of God. What does this mean? True evangelism is profoundly supernatural in nature. God orchestrates things according to his own good pleasure. We must believe, listen, in the supernatural element in evangelism. If a man or a woman is a cessationist, it doesn't mean that they don't believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. He must do the work. He must. It's imperative. You see, regeneration is the greatest miracle of God. The thing 
that I bring to your attention here in the text is that God is the one who is prominent in evangelistic work. Paul is engaged in this work of reconciling sinners to Christ because he's been reconciled. What gives the apostle the desire to see men converted is his own conversion. Don't don't forget that nature replicates nature. It's hard to give something, someone that you've not partaken of yourself. So God's done something for him. And the fact that Paul desires to evangelize is a tribute to the Lord. And the fact that Paul desires to share forth this good news is something that is constrained within through the presence of one that is distinctly supernatural, namely the Spirit of God. See God's work in the text. Let's go back to the text again. Oh, brothers and sisters, don't miss this. Verse 14, God enlightened Paul to see the love of Christ in his death. Verse 15, God enabled the apostle and enables us to no longer live for ourselves. God gave him and gives us, in verse 16, the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's not something I can conjure up. God makes him and makes us new creatures in Christ, verse 17. Verse 18, don't miss it. God entrusted the ministry of reconciliation to all who were reconciled. Verse 19, God has equipped all whom he has made ambassadors with the message of reconciliation. And then of all things, in verse 21, God made Paul and makes us partakers of the righteousness of God in Christ. This is something God does for us, you see. This is precious to me. Al Barnes, the commentator, cast some real light on here. And this had a great constraining effect on me. He says, regarding the supernatural work of God... This refers the text particularly to the renewing of the heart and the influences by which Paul had been brought to a state of willingness to forsake everything and to devote his life to the self-denying labors involved in the purpose of making the Savior known. Dear brothers and sisters, it gets better. Now listen to what he says here. He deeply, Paul deeply feels that the whole plan and all the success which has attended the plan was to be traced not to Paul's zeal or faithfulness or skill, but to the agency of Almighty God. God did something for him. That was the compelling force. You see, think about this. From an experiential vantage point of regeneration, Paul experiences the glorious advantage of appealing to men on God's behalf. It is far easier, brothers and sisters, to preach and to plead with men to be reconciled to God when you have been reconciled. Once again, That's why we go back to 2 Corinthians 4, verse 13. Listen to the words of the apostle there. 
He says, we have savingly believed. If we have, we will not be ashamed to speak of him. Paul is quoting from David in Psalm 116 and verse 10 there. He said, I believe and therefore spoke. We also believe and therefore speak. And as the old Methodist itinerant said, maybe the reason you don't talk about your religion is because you don't have any religion to talk about. Paul commends the work of grace in the saints at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 by listing numerous evidences that affirm, that affirm their election. How do you know that you're elect? Listen to what he says in verse 8. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to Godward. They showed that they had been converted. They had a true belief in God and in the truth which he had revealed. Because it goes on to say that this faith was manifest in the fact that you spread it abroad so that we need not to speak anything of you. It's interesting in that text there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8, the phrase sounded out, carries with it, the effects of a trumpet being blown in a region that echoes from place to place to place. And Paul says, this is an evidence of your election. So, human knowledge does not produce that. Scholarship Without the supernatural intervention of the Spirit yields nothing in the life of a mere professor of Jesus Christ. Number three, here's the third and final component of effectual evangelism, is human cooperation. Yes, the gospel motivates. Yes, This work of evangelism is of God. It's supernatural in nature. But dear brothers and sisters, listen. He never overrides our responsibility to carry the message forth. He does not work independently of us. He has chosen to use us. Glory to his name. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 20. You see this principle. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did plead with you, beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. Now hold on to your seatbelt. Some of you will be ready to drag me into the parking lot and stone me for what I'm about to say, but listen carefully. Don't miss the context. While not a few believers have an aversion to hyper-Calvinism. It is possible to live like one. You don't pray. You don't believe. You don't engage. You don't even share a gospel tract with someone else. So what do we do? We condemn hyper-Calvinism, but we act like one. 
When a person lets his view of election silence his verbal witness, he has an imbalanced understanding of divine election. Think about it. We are Christ ambassadors. We represent King Jesus. We stand on behalf of God. We plead in the place of the dying lamb. As former enemies of God who have been reconciled, we persuade men and we cannot afford to be passive about it. This is the first message that I shared. It's the importance of just sharing your faith naturally. I don't know about you. I've been in churches before. I was a part of some of those churches that, well, we want to prep people. We want to give them a basic formula for evangelism. And, and so you're teaching the Romans road to salvation or, or this plan of, of approaching sinners. And, and, and they give the impression that that one plan alone used on every occasion fits all. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that sounds too much like the cult. Just negates the precious, sudden, spontaneous working of the Holy Spirit. So here's what, what I feel, brothers and sisters. Please listen to this. The greatest asset that you have as an evangelist in sharing your faith with others around you is just share what great things God has done for you. What has He done for you? Has he done anything for you? I was in Chambersburg, Virginia one time, and we were doing a soul winning clinic. And this was during my Arminian days. But basically, I just had the people, first of all, number one, write down three things that characterized your life before you came to Christ. Secondly, share briefly about your coming to the Lord. And thirdly, What three things do you see in your life that have changed since you've come to the Lord? My sister's sitting over there where they're all separated and they're writing out their answers. And she's sitting there, I watch her, and she'll write a little bit and then she stops. And most of the time she's not writing anything. The outcome of that was she came to Christ. She said, I can't think of anything God's delivered me from. Even my very approach to Christ for salvation was very unbiblical, very shoddy. God showed me that I'm lost and I need a Savior. But my point in giving that assignment to these people was, man, just tell people about Christ and what He's done for you. It's like Paul Washington and Charles Leiter with a, a secular college campus. There were 200 plus students that gathered for teaching And Charles got up in front of the students and he made the statement. He said, many of you are enamored with apologetics, defending the faith, arguing with atheists and all that. But he said, here's all you need to know about apologetics. Just tell people how beautiful Christ is. Just tell them. That's all you got to do, friend. Let me just share with you. Can I just take a minute? Can I just share with you what Christ has done for me? You have no idea the impact that would make upon your loved ones. So, think along these lines. On this point, let me take the risk of saying that if you're not seeing men come to Christ in your life, it's not because you've depleted your fishing hole. I know you've got a lot of churches here in Paris. But there's still a lot of people that are lost and undone without Christ. 
What are you doing about it? It doesn't mean that the last days are so dark that the prospects of conversions have left with the darkness. John Owen, brilliant, brainy. But there was such a practical, a simplicity side to that great man. Here's what he said. Ministers are seldom honored with success when it comes to winning men to Christ unless they are continually aiming at the conversion of sinners. Horatius Bonner said in his words of Winners for Souls, the resolution that in the strength and with the blessing of God, he will never rest, the minister will never rest. He's not just talking about vocational ministers, he's talking about us as a people of God. They will never rest, will ensure it. It is the man that has made up his mind to confront every difficulty who has counted the cost and fixing his eyes upon the prize, has determined to fight his way to it. It is such a man that conquers himself, the fear of man, to see people come to Jesus. So here's what I close with. The question we need to ask ourselves is this. What do we default to when there are no conversions in our life and in our ministry? Do we comfort ourselves with the doctrine of predestination? Do we crawl up into the lap of election for consolation? Or do we begin with ourselves? Do we interrogate ourselves with the probing question, does the fault lie with me? Am I being as diligent as I can in earnestly praying for and witnessing for the conversion of sinners? While I'm fully aware that there are reasons that the Father has put in His power for the salvation of men, I believe, brethren, that we can't use that as an excuse when men don't come to Christ. God's law of sowing and reaping is as effectual a day as it was in church history. He that soweth sparingly shall reap sparingly. He that soweth bountifully shall reap bountifully. But he that does not sow at all reaps nothing. I know this is going to sound really profound, but here's a good way of saying it. If you shoot at nothing, you'll hit it every time. Dave's story is one of our heart cry missionaries in Doketown, New Brunswick, Canada. He made this statement. He said, God does not give an increase on what has not been sown. I was just with him recently. He's very modest. You have to pry things out of him. But the guy has been there now. The church is over 10 years old. Have a congregation of about 180 people. Dave has led 128 of those people to Christ. And I said, How, Dave? How'd you do it? He said, I just kept going back over and over and over again. And I said, How often did you go back? He said, Some of the people I went to over 100 times. I didn't quit. 
I said, the only reason I would back off is if they looked at me and they got angry and they said, I don't ever want to see you again. Don't come to my, back to my house. It's amazing. So here's what my concluding remark. Let us believe God by purposing as ambassadors for Christ to take the message of reconciliation to lost men. Let us be gospel compelled Trusting Him who is able to save to the uttermost all that come unto God by Christ. And let us be diligent, brothers and sisters, in our soul winning to bring many sons to glory, that the Lamb may receive the reward for His sufferings. But let us never forget the words of John Owen once again. Ministers or believers are seldom honored with success unless they are continually aiming at the conversion of sinners. So I ask you at least, do you pray for sinners? Do you really earnestly pray for them? I'm not talking about just casually sharing a prayer request every now and then about somebody that's lost. I'm asking you, do you have a prayer list that you're praying for sinners? Are you taking the initiative to pass out tracts to sinners? Are you believing God to save sinners? These are the ingredients, I believe, from the text on effectual evangelism. We live in the days of apostasy, do we not? Great darkness. But much of the darkness can be attributed to the fact that Christians oftentimes are not playing out their role as salt and light. And part of that is heralding the good news of the blood-soaked message of the atonement. I'm so indebted to it. I'm so indebted to it. And so are you. Let's pray together. Father, be pleased to use your truth, Lord, to resonate in our heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. We know the great need of the hours, the preaching of the gospel under the power of the Holy Spirit. So we come as beggars, as inept and needy men and women in all of our weakness to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to know the life-motivating elements of these things that we see in this text. Oh God, help us to take the initiative daily to relish in the beauties of the, of the gospel. Help us to never forget that salvation is of the Lord. But then, Lord, help us to never forget that he never works independently of human agents even from the smallest child to the oldest person here this morning who is in the faith of Jesus Christ, they're charged with this great responsibility to do the work of an evangelist. Some obviously are gifted with that gift. Others are not. But it doesn't negate our responsibility of sharing our faith with others. So please do your work. And I would be amiss, Father, if I did not pray 
for those that are present here this morning that are dead in trespasses and sins. Perhaps they've used election as an excuse on why they've not come to Christ. Perhaps they've blamed someone. Oh God, would you arrest them with your love? May your love so overwhelm them and overwhelm their excuses that they would fly to the gospel in repentance and faith and that you would birth them into your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.